Matthew chapter 11. Today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. And last week we began chapter 11 and we saw that all the evidence had been presented. John the Baptist had introduced the king to the nation of Israel. Jesus had revealed his person, principles, and his power. It was now up to the leaders of the nation of Israel to make their decision. Many people had followed Christ. They were interested in what he was doing. They were interested in his preaching. What we see is, starting in Matthew chapter 11 here, instead of receiving their king, they began to rebel against him. The opposition began to mount against Jesus and his mission. Well, how does Jesus respond to this opposition? Well, we're going to look at a few things of what we actually see Jesus doing here. How did, how did Jesus respond to opposition? Well, we're, we're, let me just tell you a couple of my main points, and then we'll look at them individually. Well, we see that Jesus, in response to this opposition that he's beginning to receive, he actually gives five truths about judgments. He deals with, with various cities that were unrepentant. And then Jesus proceeds to give a wonderful gospel invitation. He's not just a God of judgment, but He is also a God of grace. He is well balanced. So my question for you today is, what are you doing with Jesus? What are you doing with Jesus? I hope you're not rebelling against Him. I hope you're not indifferent. I hope you're not ignoring Him. I certainly hope you're not rebelling against Him like the people we're just about ready to read about here. We see in verses 20 through 24 that King Jesus gives us five truths about judgment. Five truths about judgment. Look at verse 20. Matthew 11, verse 20. It says, Then He, that's Jesus Christ, began to denounce the cities where most of His mighty works had been done. Why? Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sire and or Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. It's an amazing passage, but we see here Jesus gives several truths that are very helpful in regards to judgment. So let's just go through these one by one. Number one, there will be judgment. There is a day of judgment coming. Now, we don't like to think about judgment, And we often imagine that if there is a judgment, that, hey, I'm going to come out all right. Since, you know, hey, I'm a nice person, I'm a good person. Or if we hope that if we are condemned, hey, it's not going to be so bad. Well, as we see here from what Jesus says, Jesus, he doesn't treat judgment so lightly as we typically do. In fact, Jesus says judgment 
is something that should be feared. So there will be a judgment. Number two, there are degrees of punishment. There are degrees of punishment. It's how do, we, how do you know that? How do we know that? Well, Jesus says that as terrible as judgment uh, for Tyre and Sidon will be, notice Jesus says it's actually going to be worse for Chorazin and Bethsaida. And as terrible as the judgment of Sodom will be, it will be even more horrible for Capernaum. That's an amazing statement that Jesus is giving here, isn't he? Isn't he? Because if you realize just how bad Tyre, Sidon, Sidon, and Sodom were, you, you start to grasp the significance of what Jesus is saying. I mean, Sodom was such a wicked city, we've even come up with a sin called the sin of sodomy, otherwise called homosexuality. So the people of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom were obviously very wicked. And by the way, they're going to be justly punished for their sin. God doesn't overlook sin. But they had never heard of Jesus as these other cities that Jesus was mentioning here of his day. And therefore, they're not going to suffer as severe a punishment. You understand that's what Jesus is saying. I mean, remember, Capernaum was, was kind of like the, the headquarters for Jesus and his ministry. They knew Jesus and his disciples. They knew his miracles. They knew his preaching. But Jesus says Capernaum is going to be judged even to a greater degree than Sodom will be. The third truth about judgment we see here is that the worst sin of all is unbelief. The worst sin of all is unbelief. Now, we don't usually think this way since unbelief is our chief sin. We prefer to point out the sins of others, don't we? We love to blame shift. We love, we're, we're very good at seeing sin in other people, but for whatever reason, we, we, we've got this blindness often to our own sin. Uh, and, and, and for example, in your, in your mind, just answer this question. Who are history's greatest sinners? Don't, don't answer out loud. Just think in your mind. Who are history's greatest sinners? Well, I just wrote down a, a three that came to my mind. Hitler, Stalin, and Nero. Maybe you came up with one of those. Maybe you have a different list. Maybe one of those or all of those sinners rank high on your list. Yet, there is... When, when we look at this passage here, it's interesting. There's no record of the people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, or Capernaum having done anything particularly bad. In fact, Scripture basically doesn't say anything about two of those cities. Chorazin and Bethsaida didn't really say much at all. These people were just people going about their business as you and I do. Yet, they, what did they do? The one thing we do know about them, Jesus says here, is they refused to repent and turn to Jesus. And Jesus said that their unbelief was a far worse evil than the sins of the other very wicked cities that he mentioned. So, do you see that Jesus himself believes that the worst sin of all is unbelief? The fourth truth that Jesus introduces us to here in regards to judgment is this, that God's judgments take account of his knowledge. 
God's judgments take account of his knowledge. Now, what does that mean? It, it means that God's judgments are based not only on what people have done, but God's judgments also include what people would have done if the conditions were different. In this case, Jesus never actually went to Tyre and Sidon to preach and do the miracles that he did in Capernaum. But Jesus says, those people in Tyre and Sidon, they would have lived differently. They would have repented if I had gone there. But Jesus never went there. So in this case, Jesus says that Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom would have repented if the miracles that he, that he did in Galilee had been done in those cities. And that's why their judgment will be less harsh. Remember, Scripture says, to whom much is given, much will be required. So when I think of the opportunities to believe in Christ that have been given to the people of New Zealand, frankly, I tremble. I tremble. Number one, all English-speaking, all English-speaking countries will be held to greater judgment because of all the wonderful resources, all the Bibles and the study Bibles and the commentaries and the blogs and the magazines and you, the list goes on and on. Anybody pretty much around the world can go and listen to English-speaking sermons whenever they want to, basically. that We are so richly blessed. We've got multiple churches in every city in New Zealand. New Zealand should tremble at the opportunities that they have to believe in Christ. And many, many people in New Zealand have just simply done what Capernaum has done. They've rejected Christ. They've refused to repent, and they should tremble. If you refuse to repent, you should tremble. So for you, my friend, I tremble, maybe, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, I tremble for you. If you've never put your faith in Christ alone, may today be that day. Number five, the fifth truth of judgment we see here is that God does not owe salvation to anyone. He doesn't owe salvation to you or anyone else. Although the people of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom would have repented, and Jesus says they would have been saved if He had done the miracles in those cities, did He do them? No. He didn't, he didn't do them. He didn't do them there. And the people perished, by the way, justly for their sins. Now you may think that's not fair. Let me just make a comment on fairness. I'm really, frankly, I'm tired of hearing about fairness because here's what you do need to hear. You don't want God to be fair. Did you hear me? You do not want God to be fair. Now part of the problem is we think God owes us mercy. <laughs> but if mercy were owed, then it would, it would no longer be mercy. Because mercy's not getting what you deserve. The only thing God actually owes us is justice. So you don't want God to be fair. You want grace. And so, God, God, the only thing He owes us is justice. And we're, we will get justice if we don't commit our lives to Christ. 
So God is merciful to many, okay? Don't get me wrong. He is a God of mercy, and He is merciful to many, but He does not owe His mercy to anyone. You understand that? I hope. Well, there's much application we can gather from these few verses. Number one, there is a place for fear in this life. Okay? There is a place for fear in this life, despite what some people in our society like to tell us. Jesus was not afraid to let people know the implications of unbelief. The implications of unbelief is <laughs> there is much to fear. However, we often want a gospel of love. We want to hear about love. And we want a gospel of love that ensures us that everyone's going to be okay. Everybody's on their way to heaven. Everybody's a child of the King. Which is not true. And so we must not forget that the gospel is judgment. There is bad news in the gospel. And without bad news, there would never be good news. Number two. God is all-knowing, and everyone will get exactly what they deserve. Because God is all-knowing, everyone will get exactly what they deserve. No one's going to get away with anything, okay? Uh, and if you start, by the way, when, when you start grumbling and, and complaining, as I often do, about how all these the evil se- seems to go on in our country, and people get away with their wickedness and their sin, just remember Psalm 37 and 73. There's two psalms in your Bible that talk about don't fret over the wickedness. They're going to get what they deserve. Nobody's going to get away with anything. And the reason for that is because God knows everything. He sees everything. Therefore, there's no use pretending that you and I can hide anything from God. God sees in the dark just as well as in the light. No walls, stone, concrete, space or anything can hide anything from him and so in the end we're all going to be judged according to our works now unbelievers will be judged at the great white throne believers will be judged at the judgment seat of christ and first corinthians 3 talks about the judgment seat of christ it's on the screen here for you it says now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold silver precious stones wood hay straw each one's work will become manifest For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So notice... What you do here on earth does matter, and you will be rewarded accordingly. So if you decide to waste your life, and by wasting your life, Corinthians describes that as the wood, hay, and straw that's just going to be burned up, and you'll have nothing left to show for it, then you'll suffer the loss. But if you decide to set your affections on things above and lay up treasure in heaven, as Jesus commands us to do, then that's the gold, silver, and precious stones. And when it is tried in the fire, you'll have much, and you'll have a life that was meaningful and purposeful. Number three, we a third application we could make is that, I kind of already touched on this, but there's probably going to be degrees of punishment. 
There probably be degrees of punishment. Not only is there degrees of reward that we see in the Bible, there seems to be degrees of punishment. For example, in Revelation chapter 20, it says that the dead at the great white throne there are judged according to what they have done. God's keeping records. So that's very significant. It shows that each person will receive exactly what they have earned. So the great judge knows And when he gives out his sentences, it's going to be according to what they've earned. Luke chapter 12 implies this, and and some may even say it's very explicit. Look what Luke 12 says. And it's interesting here in Luke 12, it even shows us that ignorance is not an excuse. Punishment is still deserved when you think You didn't do it on purpose. You didn't know what you were doing. God says you still deserve punishment. Look what it says here on the screen. Luke 12. Jesus said, That servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So notice Jesus says, one person gets a light beating, and the other gets a severe beating. So there's various degrees, even Jesus agrees with the statement that there are various degrees of punishment. And and why is that? Well, it's the one person didn't know what they were doing. But God says, even when you don't know what you're doing, there's still punishment. The other person was just outright rebellion. They knew what they were doing. They rebelled, disobeyed. So that person gets the more severe punishment. So there's probably going to be degrees of punishment. Fourth application is this. Pride destroys. Just simply put, pride destroys. Beware of the sin of pride. What we see here in this passage, Jesus, as he talks about these various cities who refused to repent of their sin, is we see they were very proud. That's why they refused to repent. And according to James chapter 4, verse 6, God says, it well, it says this, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So why is God opposed to these cities like Capernaum? Because they were proud. They refused to repent. And God says, I oppose the proud. This is why they get the greater judgment. But God gives grace to the humble. So what does Jesus do with this opposition? Well, interestingly enough, we see that King Jesus thanks God the Father for His sovereign will in revealing salvation. And then in verses 25 through 27, He takes on Himself that authority as the Son, as the Son of God. Well, let's look at Jesus' prayer of thanksgiving, starting in verse 25. Verse 25, it says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Let's stop there for a moment. 
This is Jesus' prayer of thanksgiving. And, and, and the first question I have for you is this. Who is the recipient of this prayer? In other words, who is Jesus praying this prayer to? Well, if you look at verse 25, the recipient is the Father. And notice Jesus gives some descriptive words here of the Father. He says, the Father, Lord of heaven and earth. This phrase is looking to God as the creator and the sustainer of the universe. This truth is important because that's the basis for God being the revealer of truth. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. It's the sovereign God with authority over all things who has acted in this way. And since He's the creator and sustainer, He has the right to to declare truth. He is the one who is declaring truth, and He is the one whom we must believe and obey. So the Father's the recipient. Number two, what's the content of Jesus' prayer? Well, essentially it's this. It's God's revelation. It's interesting here in verse 25, the last part of verse 25, we see that God's revelation is hidden from the wise and understanding. Now, who are the the wise and understanding that Jesus is talking about here? Well, as far as I understand, if you look at the greater context here of Matthew, if you look at it in the narrow sense... The wise and understanding are the scribes and the Pharisees. They're the ones who are opposed to Jesus and His preaching and mission. But in the broad sense, it's it's definitely referring to unbelieving Israel. okay? Because Jesus is is bringing this judgment down on on places like Capernaum, for example, where, where His ministry was centered. We also see that God's revelation is revealed to the infants. Infants. Now I put quotation marks around infants because Jesus isn't talking about a literal infant, uh, you know, someone who's only a couple months old here. The infants are those who are the simple people, the, the unlearned who have become Jesus' followers, those who have childlike faith, who have decided that, hey, King Jesus is, is my life. I put my trust in Him. Now here's the point of this. That God reveals His truths only to those who open themselves up to Him with a childlike simplicity and receptivity. What is the reason for Jesus' praise here? There's actually a basis or reason for Jesus' praise. Jesus mentions it in verse 26. Look at verse 26, because Jesus says the reason for His prayer of thanksgiving is it's God's pleasure. God's pleasure. In verse 26, notice what Jesus says. He says, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And then in verse 27, we see Jesus' revelation. The Father reveals Jesus. Jesus reveals the Father. There's a few interesting things. Three points I just want to point out to you quickly from verse 27. Number one, all authority has been committed to Jesus. And by the way, where does the authority come from? It comes from the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth. All authority has been committed to Jesus. Again, look at verse 27. It says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. 
So the first thing we see in verse 27 is all authority, which comes from God the Father, has been committed to Jesus. There's an equality there. So in other words, Jesus is deity. Jesus is also God. And number two, we see here that the Father and Son have intimate, mutual knowledge of each other. Jesus knows the Father. The Father knows the Son, who is Jesus Christ. They have intimate, mutual knowledge of each other. They know each other better than anybody else other than the Holy Spirit. And the third thing that we see here is there's, there's a progression, a downward progression, if you will, of, of God's revelation. It comes from God the Father to Jesus Christ. And notice the third step is the revelation from the Son is given to the true followers of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus says. So it is possible for you to know the Father. Yeah, you, you haven't seen Him, but you can know the Father be, through Jesus. Well, what do you do with verse 27? Well, frankly, I don't know what else you do other than what... I like what Martin Luther said many years ago. Here's what Martin Luther said. It's on the screen. Quote, Stop speculating about the Godhead and climbing into heaven to see who or what or how God is. Hold on to this man, Jesus. He is the only God we've got. End quote. If you like bluntness, you will love Martin Luther. Because he just says it the way it is. Which is wild. He was called, that's why he was called the wild boar in the vineyard, by the way. That's what you do with verse 27. You just hold on to Jesus. Believe who he is. And stop speculating about the Godhead and trying to climb into heaven. Jesus reveals the Father. So as Jesus is receiving this opposition, what, what, how does he respond? Well, we see also here that King Jesus gives a gospel invitation in verses 28 through 30. He gives a gospel invitation. Not only does he talk about judgment, which is appropriate, but he gives, a, he gives grace. Now, it's difficult to think of an invitation more important and more gracious than the one we're about to read. And I want you to notice that this gospel invitation comes from the very lips of the one who has just pronounced judgment. So I want to give several reasons why this invitation is so gracious. Look at verse 28. Here's what Jesus says in verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you've never, if you've never memorized those verses, I highly recommend you do so. Well, let's talk about this gospel invitation. Number one, the invitation is for everyone. It's for everyone. Jesus' words here are for people of all ages, okay? Doesn't matter what your age is, doesn't matter what your nationality is, it doesn't matter what your temperament is. God is willing to save you if you're a melancholy, or a choleric, or a phlegmatic, or a sanguine. It doesn't matter to God, okay? <laughs> uh, and, and he calls all people exactly as they are. Oh, I love that truth. This truth, by the way, I think it needs to be emphasized. 
Because we tend to think that Jesus' call is for people who are somehow suited for religion. We tend to think, or even perhaps we, you know, we tend to think sometimes, hey, this, this call, this gospel invitation is for those who somehow earned a gospel invitation. You don't earn gospel invitations. None of us have earned a gospel invitation. God would be just if He never even gave a gospel invitation to any of us. But from this text, it's, it's clear that the offer of salvation is universal. Now, listen closely. I don't believe in universalism. God isn't saving everyone. It's clear. Jesus says there is a broad road that leads to destruction, and there's a narrow gate that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. it God is clear on that. He's not saving everybody. But the offer of salvation is universal. It is truly for everybody. Eternal life is offered to all. So the invitation is for everyone. Number two, the invitation is for those who are burdened by sin. Notice Jesus says, hey, he's saying, come to me. That's the invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. People who are burdened by sin, that, that phrase labor and are heavy laden, by the way, doesn't refer to physical weaknesses. It doesn't mean if you have arthritis, come to Jesus. That's not what it's talking about. It doesn't mean if you have cancer, come to Jesus. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking to people who are burdened by sin. It's not talking to people who are burdened by the the, the hardships or the difficulties of life. It's not talking to people in third world countries who are wondering where their next meal is coming from. Well, it is talking to those people because it's universal, but not in the sense of life's difficulties. It mainly refers to a sense of sin's burden and the need of a Savior. Jesus is saying, come to me if you need a Savior for your sin. The context makes this this very clear, I think. Now, on the whole, remember, the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were not burdened by sin. They didn't think they had a sin problem. They thought they're just getting along fine. Right? That's what they thought. Still, there were people who were burdened. There were some who recognized they were sinners and needed to repent. And those people, what did they do? They, they did something with Jesus. They responded. They believed in Jesus. They believed Jesus could lift the weight of sin. And, and what did they do? They turned to Jesus. They accepted Jesus. These people listened to Him. They trusted Him. And in the process, they found salvation. Number three. In this wonderful gospel invitation, we learned the invitation is to learn about Jesus. The invitation is to learn about Jesus. And when Jesus called His disciples here to learn from Me, what is He doing? He's comparing Christianity to a school. But in this in this example here, it, it, when you go to this school, unlike the school you went to, Jesus is both the subject matter and the teacher. Now it would be arrogant if you went to school and the teacher's telling you everything about them and never told you anything else. That would be very arrogant and proud of them to do that. But Jesus 
in this example here is the subject matter as well as the teacher. And Jesus says, you learn from me. Come to the school of King Jesus and learn of me. And by the way, this is the school in which every true believer has attended and in which a lifelong course of study is prescribed. It's lifelong. I've been saved over 30 years now. I've been learning and coming to Christ now for over 30 years. I continue to grow. I continue to learn. That's healthy. That's the way it should be. So the invitation is to learn about Jesus. Number four, the invitation offers rest for tired people. It offers rest for tired people. Are you a tired person? Now, I don't mean that you stayed up to 1 o'clock in the morning last night, and so you're tired in that sense. That's not what I'm talking about. And I don't mean that, hey, you didn't sleep good last night, and, and for that reason, you're tired. That's not what, I'm, it's not what Jesus is talking about either. The invitation is rest for tired people. What are we talking about here? Well, one reason some people don't understand this is this passage is, is actually offering rest twice. Rest is offered twice. It's offered in verse 28, and it's offered in verse 29. So let me talk about the two rests offered by Jesus here. Number one, there is a rest that is given to you. Because in verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden. And notice what Jesus says next. I will give you rest. There is a rest that is given to you. And notice Jesus is the one who gives it to you. What is he talking about there? He's talking about salvation. He's talking about eternal life. This rest is something that comes instantly to someone who who, who trusts in Christ. At the moment of, of trusting in Christ, believing in Him, rest is offered. There's also a rest that is found. There's a rest that is found. That's in verse 29. Verse 29 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will, notice the next word, find rest for your souls. Notice it doesn't say rest will be given to you. Jesus says this rest will, you will find it. It's a rest that is found. What's that talking about? It's not talking about salvation. This is talking about the one who has already found the rest of salvation. The one who is in Christ receives this kind of rest. And this is, this is really sanctification. It's the rest that comes when someone progressively learns to follow Jesus in their daily life. Are you finding that kind of a rest? My friend, you cannot find the rest of verse 29 until you have the rest of verse 28. Is there a moment in your life, a specific time in your life, you can go back to, you can point to and say, it was at that moment I became a child of the King. There must be that moment. If not, then you need to make that moment. Because you'll never find the rest of verse 29, this sanctification, this rest that is progressively coming to a, to a follower of Christ until salvation is given. Again, there's much application we can learn from this wonderful passage. Let me just highlight a few things to you, okay? Number one, God wants the simple and receptive. He wants the simple and receptive. He's not interested in, 
in the person who is proud, the, the one who thinks they know it all. God's not going to accept the proud know-it-alls like the scribes and the Pharisees, for example. In fact, Jesus pronounced woes upon these kind of people. Number two, God is sovereign and works out His salvation His way. One commentator put it this way. Okay, I can't say it any better, so let's just read what he says. Quote, God chooses or rejects whomever He wishes. Whether we see His predestination as absolute or based on foreknowledge, the fact of divine choice is real. At the same time, human responsibility is equally taught here. Theological systems have debated this for centuries, and each side believes they alone are right. What is interesting is the total abstinence of debate in the early church on this issue. They simply allowed the tension to stand, and Jesus refused to overemphasize either side. We should definitely follow his example and refuse to allow ourselves to be divided on this issue. There is mystery in the kingdom, and God has not given us all the truth. We need humility and less arrogance. End quote. And if you're not sure exactly what he's getting at there, I'd be happy to, to uh, talk to you more about that later. But I hope you understand that there is, there is a tension in the Bible. There's a tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and they must coexist side by side. They're both true. You may not understand that, just like I don't, but it is true. Jesus taught both. Number three, everyone has a yoke. Everybody has a yoke. Jesus said so. All right, and you say, well, what is a yoke? What is, what is Jesus talking about here when he mentions in verse 30, that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's he talking about? I've given you a picture here. If you're not sure what a yoke is, if you've never been behind a couple oxen who had yoke on them, this, that's what one looks like. A yoke is a wooden frame that would, it would join two animals together so that they could work together efficiently. The yoke was usually put on oxen for pulling heavy loads. And so Jesus is using this physical illustration to portray spiritual truth. Now, in this life, no one has an easy road, right? None of us have an easy road. Even if you're a Christian, doesn't mean you're going to have an easy road through life. Yet, for every person, there is an alternative. Everyone has a yoke, but you can choose whether you're going to wear the world's yoke or you're going to wear Christ's yoke. Now, Jesus says here in verse 30, My yoke's easy. My yoke's easy. If you want to carry the heavier, harder yoke of the world, go for it. But my yoke's easy, and my burden is light. And so if you choose the way of the world, you're going to be weighed down by practices that provide no comfort for the weary soul. For example, the people who get drunk, what do they have to do? They have to do it again and again and again and again and again and again. Keep spending their money, get drunk, and do it again and again and again. There's no rest in this worldly practice, is there? They're never going to find satisfaction in that worldly practice. Well, in contrast, Jesus' yoke is more than just a way of life. It's a relationship. It is life. It's a following. It's a commitment. It's choosing to walk the 
walk of Jesus and to approach life his way. That's what Jesus is saying here. And, and, and in the process, what happens is rest is not just a, a sense of peace in the chaos of life. It is a restful relationship in Christ. Do you see the difference? And it doesn't mean that, you know, there's not going to be any weight and that it's, there's going to be no burdens. But Jesus says in verse 30 that this yoke's easy and his burden is light. There's still a burden. There's still a yoke. But it's much better than the world. The choice is yours. Everybody has a yoke. Number four, there's no ultimate satisfaction from choosing the secular way. You can choose the secular way if you wish, but you're never going to be ultimately satisfied in that way. With the secular way, you never, you never have enough. It's like, you know, people getting drunk, you know, never satisfied in getting drunk, are they? Never satisfied in having drugs. Never satisfied in the last thrill, whatever that thrill is. You know, you want to jump out of airplanes or off buildings or whatever. Never satisfied with it. they got to go find something bigger, taller, wider, deeper, whatever it is, right? But Jesus' way is easy, he says. It's, it's light. Now, that doesn't mean that it takes little effort or it involves little sacrifice. Those of us who have been Christians a while, we know better than that. There is sacrifice in following Christ. And it does take effort. In fact, following Jesus is exactly the opposite. It, it's demanding. It demands everything of us. But Jesus says it is light. It is light because it's the only way that actually works, for one thing. It's the only lifestyle that actually produces ongoing satisfaction. Nothing else will. Number five, Jesus is the only rest you or any other soul will ever need. He's the only rest you or any other soul will ever need. I love John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And in that book, uh, you, and the reason I put the picture up here on the screen for you is, you might feel that way. You may be laboring onward like Pilgrim did in The Pilgrim's Progress. You might be distressed at the burden on your back. You might feel that, hey, there, there is no earthly master, nothing, no person that could lift that burden. And that's the way it was for Pilgrim. He tried everything. He wanted to get rid of that burden. He didn't like the burden. In fact, he found that people added to his burden. His city of destruction added to his burden. His family added to his burden. Other people come along, add to the burden. And the majority of people just frankly want to ignore our burdens because, why? Because they have burdens of their own. So my friend, my friend, are you listening? You need Jesus. You need Jesus. And that goes for you, my friend, even if you are a believer in Jesus, you still need Jesus. He's the only one who can actually help you. So why not turn to Him right now? Don't wait. Turn from all inferior teachers to the one who alone can actually teach us true godliness. The only one who can, can introduce us to God the Father. The only one who can get us into heaven. The only one who can save our souls. So I ask you, what are you doing with King Jesus? What are you doing with King Jesus? Are you rejecting Him like those unrepentant cities that Jesus mentions here? In Matthew 11? 
If you are, then you need to stop rejecting Jesus and accept His gospel invitation, which is come to Him. Don't go to church. That's not what Jesus said. Don't, 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 you know, don't go and do good works or any penance or anything else. No. Come to Jesus. My Christian brothers and sisters, let me ask you this. Are you resting only in Jesus? That word only is key there. Are you resting only in Jesus? Whatever else you want to tack on there is insufficient. If, if you're not only, if you're not resting only in Jesus, then here's what you need to do. You need to forsake your sin. You need to confess your sin. And you need to plead for grace. So what are you doing with Jesus? By the way, what you do with Jesus is not only going to determine your eternal destiny, it's also going to determine how well you live today and tomorrow and the day after that. So what are you doing with Jesus? Don't reject Him, as these cities did. Instead, believe and come to Him to find rest for your weary soul.